Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101, the average consumer's guide to cryptocurrency. This is Matthew Aaron, and today we have a special guest. We have Mr. Marcus Delano East, CTO of National Geographic. And part of having Mr. Marcus East on the show is Crypto 101's commitment to bridging out beyond cryptocurrency into the companies that we all know we all grew up with to see their ideas for technology, the future of the world, and how they could possibly use blockchain technology. So I'm very happy to welcome Mr. Marcus East to learn about himself and about Nagio's commitment to global betterment. But before we get into that, like always, hey, wherever you're listening to this podcast, any app, please make sure you're subscribed. Leave us a comment. Leave us a rating. It helps us stay visible. It's very much appreciated. Also, follow us on social medias, our Facebook, our Twitter, our Instagram to see everything that's going on Crypto 101 related. You can find those on our website, Crypto101podcast.com. Also, patrons, I've been keeping up putting content out on the Patreon page just for you. So please make sure that you're tuning into the Patreon page. I really appreciate you being patrons. And this is not financial advice, legal advice investment advice or personal advice without further ado here's mr marcus east of national geographic we'll see you after the show marcus delano east cto of national geographic welcome to crypto 101 sir thanks for having me great to be here sir first question i love your middle name is that after roosevelt it is, yeah. My father was very passionate about politics when he was younger, so I was named after FDR. Right on, right on. Sir, you're the CTO of National Geographic, a 131-year-old publication. Can we just go into first a little bit about your background and well, how you got to be the CTO of a, over a century-old publication? Yeah. A national treasure almost. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I pinch myself when I'm walking through the halls of National Geographic. Um, I think my career I describe as having two components to it. It's kind of half tech. So I spent six years in IBM and four years in Apple. So that was all about building world-class technology. But then the other half of my career is where the passion has also kicked in, which has been how do you help organizations and brands harness the power of technology? So a couple of years ago, I was approached by National Geographic and I was told by the leadership team that they really wanted to transform that brand and make it relevant in the digital age. They wanted to not only have a great magazine and TV channel, they wanted to really reach out across social media and the internet and native apps. So jumped at the chance to join them and, and help to drive that transformation. What were you doing previously? So prior to that, I was um, back in the UK briefly for a company called Marks & Spencer, which is the biggest retailer um, in the UK. And then before that, I was at Apple. Okay. Yeah, we all, I think everybody should know Marks & Spencer. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. And if I recall, I saw your bio. You graduated from Cambridge? I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did my master's at Cambridge, which was incredible fun. I mean, Cambridge is over 900 years old, and mm-hmm. it's a real privilege to study there. But interestingly, my high school, um, Latimer, is 400 years old. And that was also it's just amazing to study in these places where you could read about something that happened in the past and go down to the library and pull out a newspaper <laughs> from, you know, 150 years ago. Right. That's interesting. You actually, so you just walked the halls of history during your whole educational process. Yeah. Um, and now during my professional life as well, it seems. Please Tell us a little bit about the history of National Geographic. National Geographic was founded in January 1888, and its real mission was driving 
research, science and exploration. Uh, and in fact, we're still based in the same building today. So my office actually is not far from the actual room where the founders of National Geographic actually created that initial mandate. And since that time, the organization has morphed and has changed and developed, but at its core is still that principle. We're trying to help people understand the world around them. We're supporting and funding explorers and researchers who are doing things that help with that knowledge. And at the same time, we're now giving consumers an opportunity to really understand some of the important things happening, whether it be climate change or whether it be the risks to biodiversity in the oceans. And one of the big initiatives right now is around plastics, for example. So it's a really interesting combination of storytelling and supporting research, but also trying to drive people to take action to protect the planet. Supporting and funding explorers. Can you go into that a little bit? Because that's that's interesting. That I never actually thought of. I, I think of National Geographic as a publication. You guys go out there and you get stories. And I I assume that you have journalists. But what is an explorer? How do you fund an explorer? And how do they actually like maybe pitch you and saying, "Hey, I'm going to go do this. Give me money." And yeah, that whole process. Yeah, it's it's a great question because in some respects, a lot of what we do really comes together with the explorers. There's two parts of National Geographic. There's what we call National Geographic Society, and that purely looks after the explorers. Um, and then there's National Geographic Partners, which is the media arm that has the magazine and the TV channel and our digital channels. So if we just focus on National Geographic Society to start with, um, there's a team of people there that have a real passion about the power of science to drive change in society. And they invite people around the world, and it's truly a global audience. You can be a researcher in sub-Saharan Africa, or you can be in Europe, it doesn't matter. And you, there is a process where you can apply for a grant through the National Geographic Society program. And you then have an opportunity to present your idea. And if it's an idea that lines up with the objectives and the priorities for National Geographic, you can be funded to move on. So as a great example, one of our fellows is a lady called Heather Caldaway. She's a leading marine biologist, and she's doing a lot of work looking at how plastics in the oceans are actually changing the physiology of fish. So she's looking at how nanoplastics are now being absorbed into the physiology of fish. And that's important because the truth is we know there's plastics in the ocean. We also need to understand what is it doing to us as human beings eating that fish. So they're the sorts of things that we support. Who are some famous historical fellows? Yeah, great question. I think that there are some really interesting characters in the National Geographic past. Uh, there's obviously Jacques Cousteau and the work that he did in terms of um, helping people to understand the oceans. Bob Ballard, who discovered the Titanic, that was a National Geographic oh, wow. supported initiative okay. as well. But I guess the one that I have the most connection to emotionally would be Jane Goodall. Mm. Um, and Jane Goodall with the groundbreaking work that she did around chimpanzees. And she was the first human to really study them and understand what they're about. Um, I still get goosebumps just watching some of the videos of her early days. Actually, that's interesting because I was, I was going to ask if Jane Goodall was a fellow. She was. And in fact, there's a great film called Jane, which is just about her life that um, we released last year, which has been really critically acclaimed. And what's interesting about that is that the film was made based on some material that an intern found in our National Geographic archives in Washington, D.C. So these were kind of lost archives. They got that footage, put it together, and we made an incredible film, which um, just catalogs her life from starting out as a, a young woman going to Gombe in Africa by herself, mm. living in the jungle, observing chimpanzees through to now being one of the world's leading experts in primates. Wow. For these fellows, and I'm going to move away from fellows here in a minute, but I think that 
the average consumer and the average listener or the average reader of National Geographic probably doesn't understand what you guys would look for out of an explorer or a fellow. Do you have to have a resume? How do you build a resume? Is it a good idea? Is it just maybe the passion that you bring to the table that is that makes National Geographic say, we're going to take a risk? And it, have you ever taken a risk and it been a super big reward? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that there's a lot of diversity now in you know what is and who is an explorer. Mm. So we talked about the fellows and the sort of formal explorers. Many of them do come from a scientific background. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are people that have spent many years studying a particular field, and then they really focus on deep diving into the knowledge. But then we have people who are younger and up and coming. So a good example would be um, someone like Topher White. Topher created a technology called the guardian and he actually built using old smartphones and solar panels devices that go in rainforests and they detect when someone's firing up a chainsaw for example wow now he was uh, what we call a, a young explorer and so we have a range there's the really the scientist like heather coldway that i talked about but there's also the younger up-and-coming people but uh, it's worth mentioning a new initiative that we have as well called open explorer an open explorer is trying to democratize exploration. Mm-hmm. Effectively, it's a bit like Kickstarter for exploration. You can go to open explorer. You don't have to have any background. Maybe you never went to college. Maybe you don't have a strong academic background. And on open explorer, you can create an expedition and you can connect with other people around the world. And over time, you might then go on to become an explorer professionally. And my favorite example is a group of teenagers in Chicago They saw a meteorite go into Lake Michigan and they discovered Open Explorer and they started asking questions about, you know, how do meteorites get to the planet Earth? How do you explore them? And about a year later, they had connected with so many professional explorers and experts around the world. They'd actually built an underwater robot and they took it down into Lake Michigan to go and find that meteorite. And why that excites me is that those those young pupils, one of them might be the the big explorer of the future one of them might become a Jane Goodall or might become a Bob Ballard and so National Geographic is not only supporting the deep science and exploration in a formal way we're trying to enable the next generation of explorers too that's that's really that's really awesome is this all funded through selling the magazine and you guys your own personal monetization are you getting government funding as well I mean because this is important work that these people are doing I would assume that funding would come from all over the globe to try to get involved with this yeah it does National Geographic has incredible recognition as a brand and so it's supported by lots of organizations and um, there are endowments and there are people who act as donors and members as we call them who give money each month to the society but there is also a commercial aspect to it too in the National Geographic Park Partners, which is a commercial entity, it actually gives 27% of the profits that it makes to National Geographic Society to fund exploration. Hmm. So the beauty is when somebody watches the TV channel or maybe buys a National Geographic product, then some of that money potentially goes and supports exploration. And, and actually, it's worth noting that we have some quite diverse businesses. One of my favorite businesses in National Geographic is our expeditions business. Mm-hmm. Expeditions allows you, let's imagine that you're interested in penguins. You've been right. reading about penguins. And love you say, penguins. you know what I'd love to do? I'd like to get on a private National Geographic jet, fly down to Antarctica with one of the world's leading experts in penguins and a photographer and spend a week with penguins in okay. Antarctica. That, that doesn't sound cheap. <laughs> It's not cheap, but what I'm told is that it's great value for money. <laughs> I, bet, I, I bet it is. I bet it is. I wish I could take advantage of that. 
the history of National Geographic in the 131 years history, how has the focus changed from the from the first issue to maybe these different historical instances in time from not only wars to climate to events to, you know, people and how all of this has morphed over 131 years? How has the focus of National Geographic changed over time? Great question. I think if you were to go right back to the beginning, a lot of the focus was on things that would be considered almost sort of purely scientific and research-based. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine back then it was people, typically men, sitting in a room talking about something that they discovered mm-hmm. or some principle. I think that one of the ways in which they would find the magazine and the channel different today is that we're also now focused on building on that scientific basis and we're interested in the human story. And the reality is that you can define geography in, in some respects as the movement of people over mm-hmm. time. So I'll throw out a couple of examples of things that we've done recently that have been really interesting. And back in April of last year, we had what we call the race issue. And that's where our editor-in-chief, Susan Goldberg, had got experts from all around the world to come together and talk about race. And in a nutshell, what they basically said was there's no such thing as race. Race is, a, is an artificial political construct that doesn't actually have any basis in science. And the cover of that particular issue of the magazine was two twins from England, one of them who was blue white blonde the other who has dark skin and dark hair Hmm. but they are twins and how that happened was that their mother is a traditional english rose she's a blue eyed blonde their father is from jamaica so he's like me dark with dark hair but once you put all of that genetics together the reality is that the way in which our genes come together is is highly unpredictable and so these twins who look the same but have different coloring were a really great way of us connecting people with that issue and when you see that image it's really arresting and people were like wow Mm. how can they be twins and then they read the article Mm. and they understand oh that's because race is not really it's not a binary scientific thing and so you can see in that example that there's still an element of science to it but we also bring it to life by connecting it to the human story and that's one of the big differences current issues you, you just told us a little bit about how your focus of national geographic has changed over time what are some current issues that the magazine is looking at and really focusing on yeah so there's some really big things that we're passionate about and we talk about a lot in the office one of them obviously is climate change and talking about how the changes that we can see today are likely to impact us in the future so if you were to go to the national geographic website you'd see um, an article that we wrote recently forecasting What does the weather and the climate look like in major American cities in 30 years' time? And the truth is we can see that some of the trends are going to have an impact. So places in the Midwest, you know, places like Minnesota, they will probably become warmer. And what does that do? It might be good for humans because we like typically weather to be a little bit warmer, but it will have a profound impact on the ecosystem. So climate change is one of the things that we're really focused on and our approach is scientific. We want to share the data, we want to have experts, have a forum to talk about it, and we want people to come to their own conclusions. So climate change is a big one. But then another one that's interesting would be smart cities. And we spend a lot of time thinking about how do humans live together? And as there are more and more humans, you know, as we approach having 8 billion people on the planet, how will we distribute resources? How will we work? How will we live? How will we manage our energy needs? And once again, this is partly about the science. But then we have amazing journalists. I mean, some of the best journalists in the world. And they go out and they go to different countries and different communities. And they use the power of photography to help tell that story. 
So if you are in sub-Saharan Africa and you right now don't have access to energy, that has an impact on your health, on your education. But if people can provide access to solar power, that's just going to enable a completely different future for humanity. You said when you're talking about climate change that you present things so people can come to their own conclusions. What if their conclusion is not the conclusion you want them to come to? Is that acceptable? Yeah, this is my personal belief, so I'll speak personally rather than on behalf of the the company right now. It's my belief that debate is key. Mm. And any of these big topics that are affecting humanity, you will find different points of view. And I personally enjoy those different points of view. And if I go back to the, the race issue, one of the things that Susan did was she actually held an event called Discussions on Race. And she brought together a group of people to talk about different things. And for me personally, it's those conversations that are as powerful as reading the data and understanding the science. And one of the things that I believe as a, as a British person now living in America is that we need more debate and more dialogue in America. Um, One of the things that I remember growing up um, as a child, my dad was an active trade unionist and debate was really important in my household and debate was important in the workplace. And when I first moved to the US, I was working in Silicon Valley and I realized that nobody talked about politics, nobody talked about serious issues. And sometimes I would be the one that would start those conversations. And it was difficult because people were not used to talking about them. But I think that conversation leads to a better understanding. And I think that all decisions compromise consensus has to come from understanding being a british person living in the united states your accent kills it doesn't it (laughs) it has been said that my accent is maybe a tool that um, has worked to my advantage (laughs) (laughs) this might be a personal question and please don't you don't you don't have to answer it I, i really like how you say you're focused on the race issue and i i am very interested on those topics and those discussions as well i'm i'm mixed race i am nigerian polish irish what is your ethnic background? Yeah, a uh, great question. So my <laughs> parents come from Jamaica. Okay. And so when growing up, I would describe myself as a British um, black person. And it's interesting that in Britain, the British comes before anything else. Okay. Whereas I, when I came to America, people will describe themselves as an African-American. Um, but I, I think science helps us there as well. One of the things that I did recently was a DNA test. And my DNA test um, confirms my origins. 23andMe? 23andMe. All right. And I I also did um, another one with Helix. It's good to have two data points. Really quick, if anybody's listening, we do have an episode on 23andMe called the 23andMe Dilemma. Go back a couple episodes and listen to that. It is killer. Sorry, sir. No, I bet. I mean, this is a really interesting topic. And my origins turned out to be around 75% West African, which is you'd expect because that's where a lot of people descended from slaves come from. Right around um, 22, 23% European, so British, Scottish, um, German, and some other um, European um, heritages, but then a small amount of Native American. And that makes perfect sense, because if you take a step back and you then look at the history of Jamaica, it was populated by indigenous Arawak um, Mm. Native um, Indians. They were then introduced to a very large slave population. So there would have been some sort of interbreeding there. And when I was in Germany a a couple of weeks ago, I was asked by some people there, how are you 5% German? And I actually had a video to show them that in 1834, 500 Germans moved to Jamaica in the belief that they were going to create this paradise, this agricultural paradise in the middle of Jamaica in the mountains. And it failed horribly because... Mm. It was too hot for them. They didn't understand the terrain or the nature there. 
but that's where my German origins come from. And I think that that's where DNA helps us to unlock our past and helps us to understand ourselves better. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. Moving on to your CTO responsibilities, when I mentioned that National Geographic has a CTO, the first thing somebody said to me just yesterday was, they're, they're a magazine, what do they need a CTO for? Mm-hmm. And, and by no means is that, you know, any, uh, but what does a CTO do for National Geographic, maybe to frame the next half of our conversation? Of course, yeah, it's, it's a good question, because I had the same question when I was first approached about the role. And I think I would break my responsibilities into three areas. There's the technology and the systems that support the editorial workflows. So they're the tools that allow our journalists to tell their great stories. And, you know, that is publishing workflows, editorial tools, um, curation tools. But then there is also the technology that allows them to share those stories with consumers. So our website. And believe it or not, and this will will surprise you, we are um, the world's number one social media brand. So every day, around 450 million people interact with us. Wow. Yes. I don't think anybody knows that. Yeah. And And why is that a secret? Yeah. And this is the interesting thing is when I tell you how that's come about, a light bulb will go on. So for example, on Instagram, and we are the number one brand on Instagram. We account for around roughly 11% of their audience. Bling. Yeah. yeah. Why? Because we take photographs and we have amazing photographs. Yeah. Every day they upload the photographs to Instagram and people just adore looking at those those photographs. And the beauty is the way in which we've configured our account is we have dozens of photographers around the world who all upload photos to the same account and they do that in real time. So that has led to just this great following. So we're um, we have over 90 million people on Instagram who who follow us. But then on Facebook We've taken it a step further. We actually broadcast some of our programming live on Facebook. So twice a day, we take um, one of our explorers, we pick them um, based on a schedule. Typically, they're in places like Sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America or Central America, and they broadcast live what they're doing on Facebook. And sometimes they have audiences of in excess of a million people wow. who are watching them like you know, in a Jeep driving around the savannah, and they say, hey, look, there's a cheetah, there's a leopard. People love it and they interact with it. But there's another dimension which is going to really surprise you. We've moved on from just having a situation where we publish content. We now have communities where we ask our audience to give us content. So we have an audience of a million people using something that we call Your Shop, which is a global photographer community. And our experts say... This is your shot? Your shot, yes. Okay. And if you um, you can go to the Nat Geo website and you'll find it in the navigation. Or if you just type your shot into Google, it will come up. And what's incredible about it is that we have an assignment. So one of our photographer, um, photography editors might say, we're talking about love this month. Show us the pictures that talk to love for you. And then we will get thousands of pictures from around the world with people giving us what love means to them. And our editors then have a discussion about that. They curate the ones that we feel are the most creatively impressive. And there's a great discussion about not only the subjects, but then how did you take those photographs? So we've gone from 130 years ago telling people what was happening in the world to a situation where we tell them what's happening in the world. We encourage them to share with us what they see going on in the world. And we also then get involved in a dialogue with them about that. Wow. And then the third thing, because I didn't finish, the third element no, of the technology <laughs> is, um, is really innovation. So we have these explorers in the field. We help them to get access to technologies that will help them to do their jobs. So the role of CTO at Nat Geo is exciting and broad. 
being a CTO of National Geographic, you definitely are in a position to guide the magazine in certain ways. And those certain ways are probably based off of your personal passions. What are some of your passions that you are very passionate about right now and maybe even This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply or the future that you would like to see National Geographic incorporate? Yeah, uh, another great question. One of my passions now is this idea of democratizing access to knowledge and science and, and data in that it's my honest belief that for people to make the best decisions, they have to have valid data as a source. So several years ago when I was back in the UK, I was an elected official. I was interested in politics and I was elected to represent the district of London that I was born in, which is called Enfield. Would that be called an MP? Um, no, and that was actually a councilman or councillor. Okay. Um, so that's the step down from, a, from an MP. That would have been the next step if I hadn't have joined Apple. Okay. Um, and what's interesting is when you have that responsibility to make decisions that affect your local community, so you make decisions about you know, lighting and budgets for planting trees and maintenance and all these different things, you realize a lot of those decisions are made based on recommendations that come from people that work within the council, or they come from your residents, or they come from what you believe yourself. But actually, there's not a huge amount of data that's always available to help make those decisions. And one of my dreams is that in the future, we should all be able to go to a dashboard that tells us what is happening in the world around us. So what is the air pollution today? What is the UV level? How many plastic particulates are there in the air? All of these things, everyone has a right to understand what is happening in the world around them. And I believe that if we have that data and we understand what's going on around us, we're more likely to make good decisions. So that is something I'm super passionate about. Um, And really, uh, it's exciting for me that National Geographic's values align with that as well. And we believe in the democratization of exploration. Okay, so... so that's awesome that um, National Geographic's ideas or, or goals and passions align with yours. What is the next step to get to that goal then for National Geographic? Is it already taking that step toward it? Is the technology there to allow this idea and passion for you to flourish? Hmm. I think technology is an enabler. And I believe that the technology has to enable it, that there has to be a willingness as well mm-hmm. from a strategic perspective to to deliver. And National Geographic is an organization that's helping to facilitate these discussions. We've got a great initiative right now called Planet or Plastics. And we're trying to tell people to decrease their use of single-use plastics. And we're getting them to engage with us. And it's obviously based on the science that comes from our explorers. But I would say all of this starts with education. I think we have to think about the next generation. So my second passion is my 
my really strong desire to see more young people embracing science, embracing technology. I'd like to see more diversity um, in technology. When I was in Silicon Valley, for example, one of the things that struck me is wherever I went, people would often come up to me and say, oh, you're Marcus, aren't you? And I remember my girlfriend at the time said, well, that's because you're the only black guy around. So <laughs> guess what? Like, you're obviously Marcus. I was actually sitting in Palo Alto one morning having breakfast with a colleague. And there I was. We were just having a nice conversation outside this restaurant. And this lady walked by and stopped and looked at me. And she just said to her friend, just wait a moment. And she walked over and said, sorry, are you Marcus East? And I said, yes. She says, so embarrassing. She says, but I heard about you at a conference like last year. And someone said, oh, yeah, there's this guy, Marcus East. He's in Silicon Valley. And I saw you and thought, well, you must be Marcus East. And it's like, what are the chances of that? But when you're in a minority that is not well represented <laughs> in a place, that can happen. So what I would hope is that in 20 years' time, that shouldn't happen. In 20 years' time, we should have a much more diverse workforce helping on these technology issues. And that's a big passion of mine as well. Do you think that blockchain technology has a place in your passions? Absolutely. I think blockchain is incredibly important when it comes to enabling capabilities for some of these things. So when you think about the data that people can be generating, you know, the heuristics of temperature, of humidity, of pollution, you want to be able to tie those to a specific location. And I think that some of the technologies available today that are connecting location in the physical sense with data, I just think that's incredibly powerful. And it allows people to also have more of a personal emotional connection with it. So that's really important to me. But then another field that, that excites me is this idea of identity. And right now, much of our identity is predicated or even moderated through third parties. Mm -hmm. This Just this last week, I've read two examples of people who have had their citizenships taken away from them. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty is that there is no way right now for you to identify your citizenship independent of some kind of trusted third party. And I met at a conference and recently a, a man who was a refugee. He was from the Middle East. He was a scholarly man. He was educated. He was a surgeon, in fact. But he arrived in Europe and... His government or the government of his country had said, no, he doesn't have these qualifications. He's not registered with us. And therefore, he finds himself losing his identity. And the idea that we could in the future somehow have a digital form of our identities that truly belonged to us, that was immutable, that was validated, not by a single legal government or administrative entity, but was effectively recorded in the blockchain could just change the way that we operate as humanity. What was that movie with Tom Hanks living in the airport because he didn't have an identity? Yeah, that's right. And um, that, you know, this idea of being stateless is becoming increasingly apparent that people are being affected by it. Right. I'll give you an example that's quite shocking. I was reading it about it this morning. There's a young lady from England. She's a British citizen. She decided she really bought into some of the narrative that she was hearing from um, some of the protagonists in Syria. So she chose to go to Syria to fight. And she ended up marrying someone who was a fighter in ISIS. And she lived there for four years. And now she's decided that she doesn't want to do that anymore. So she said, I'd like to come home. She called up the British embassy and said, I want to come home. I'm pregnant. I want to come home and have my baby. And they said, hmm, we're not really sure if we want you to be mm. in England. And the question is, I mean, there are lots of ethical questions. Right. 
is there a way in the future where your identity is your identity? Mm -hmm. Or will, will we always persist in a world where, no, your identity can be altered or taken away from you if you do things that your government decides are unacceptable? I remember listening to this article and this whole case of the woman that left Saudi Arabia was in Thailand. I guess Thailand government and Saudi government were having an argument, somehow got out of Thailand to Australia, and then they got granted uh, refugee status in Canada. Insane. It's crazy. But I think that there's a definition that we need to define if we're going to continue this conversation. Identity and citizenship. Mm. To say somebody has identity doesn't mean that they're allowed to or necessarily granted the rights to be a citizen of a certain place. Is that correct? And so what's the difference? Yeah, that, this is a great question as well because you could argue that your identity is something that is personal to you and it is the characteristics of you. You might say that your identity is made up of your values, your history, your beliefs, your physical characteristics, your height, your eye color, etc., and potentially your DNA. Citizenship, in some respects, is an entitlement that may or may not be connected to your identity. Mm -hmm. But that's where the technology plays a really interesting role in that being able to take these concepts that, to be honest, these are thousands-year-old concepts, like a passport. Right. A passport is a document created pretty much in Europe where you would be able to go around and say, look, I have a letter from the king that says I'm allowed to travel. My passport still says that I am a subject of Her Britannic Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II of England. <laughs> okay, so technically it's still the same thing. Right. But maybe in the future we need a different model. Interesting. Can I just throw something else out Absolutely, there? Absolutely, please. Um, I am also a citizen of a new nation called Asgardia. I don't know if you've heard about Asgardia. Is Thor live there? <laughs> um, I don't know. I'd have to check that out. But this Asgardia is being created by a Russian billionaire. He wants to build in space a permanent satellite that will be inhabited by human beings. He has enough money to do so. He went to the United Nations and he asked for permission. They made him jump through lots of hoops. They said, you need a constitution. You need people to sign up for this. Wow. And it's happened. So Asgardia is going to be built. You're, you're a resident. I am a citizen of Asgardia. You're a citizen, not a yes. resident because it's not there yet. It's not there yet. You're a citizen of Asgardia. Mm -hmm. How many people live, are citizens of Asgardia right now? So I believe close to a million people have signed up for citizenship. Oh, wow. And the process has become quite advanced now. They've recently elected their first officials. There is a president of Asgardia. There is a parliament. There are laws. There is a constitution. And people are actively now engaging in this idea that could we create a society that is based on not only better values, but uses technology to define people's interactions and their capabilities. Do you ever watch The Family Guy? I don't actually. Okay, there's this one episode where Peter made uh, Petopia, and it, and it was just his house, and he had a constitution, and he was trying to keep everybody out of it. And I think the U.S. government actually went to there with tanks, and <laughs> and anyway, so it because this is new to me, and I think this might be a news to a, a lot of listeners as well. Asgardia, what is if you're a citizen of there, does that grant you special privileges or rights or maybe even protections as being a citizen of there? Maybe one day. I mean, if, if we think about this going forward, let's imagine that it's 15 years time, Asgardia has been built. So there is some kind of physical space station that has been built by billionaires 
that has a constitution, laws, rules and technology that enables a society to exist. In 15 years' time, there may be, for some of the citizens of Asgardia, a natural disaster that might lead to them saying, hey, I can't live here anymore, but maybe I can go and live on Asgardia. Now, there are all sorts of implications. My wife, for example, is very much against this. She says, it sounds like it is an elitist place. The only people who know about this are like bankers, technologists and scientists. So you're going to build a society that is just based on those sorts of people. Mm -hmm. And I said to her, yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. And she said, sounds horrible to me. She said, I would not go. So if ever the need arises, she says, I would rather be here on Earth and I will accept what's going to happen to me than live in some kind of bizarre elitist utopia based on technology and robots. Everything intellectual, I might say, comes from movies. Have you seen the movie Elysium? I have. Okay. I have. And there are <laughs> principles there that maybe will play out in reality in Asgardia. So yeah, you might want to interview the president of Asgardia. You might find that interesting. I would love to. If you have a connection, please set it, set it up. I would fly even to wherever he is to have that interview. <laughs> I'll do that for you. Bringing this back to blockchain and identity, even citizenship, part of the problem you said is the third party entity has control of that citizenship, identity. How would blockchain remove that power that they have? Yeah. If you try and just break it down simply, imagine a world where our identity is something that gets created for us on birth. So there is a digital identity that captures some characteristic of ours. Maybe it's using our DNA in some way together with um, private keys in order to create some kind of digital identity. And that digital identity will say that Johnny was born in this place on that date. Rather than that being stored in a database that's run by that local authority, it just goes out across the blockchain. So let's imagine that there is a, a blockchain, let's maybe say something built on Ethereum, that recognizes you as a human being. And that blockchain, whether it's a smart contract or whether it is some other implementation, is something that persists across thousands and millions of computers around the world. And so it would be almost impossible for a third party to take that away from you. Mm -hmm. Now, as you go through life and as you reach different milestones maybe you graduate high school that could also be recorded to part of your identity mm -hmm. and proliferate in the blockchain so that it becomes an immutable fact that isn't dependent on a single source of data but they still have to grant you again access to that identity they have to grant you the permission to use that identity do you do you see that happening yeah and this is where um, i'm quite interested in some of the new developments around and particularly around ethereum so zk snarks i think is really interesting the idea of zero knowledge acknowledgements that i'm not necessarily going to give you that data but i am going to somehow confirm to you that the data is valid mm. and i think the the way in which we as individuals use our data could be potentially changed by these contracts and um, there's a company in the uk called citizen me run by someone called Sinjin deacons and they are really trying to build out this idea that in the future citizens will want to keep their data to themselves and only share secrets or um, indicators of secrets in order to be able to do things maybe apply for a job or apply for a mortgage and I think that we're just at the beginning of technologies that can enable that. And today it would be very hard. I mean, the reality is most digital identities still require you to have a smartphone and a set of certificates and keys. 
um, and therefore they're subject to loss. They're subject to you being deprived. I mean, if your digital identity is on a smartphone mm-hmm. and you end up in some sort of natural disaster and you don't have access to any technology, it's not very helpful to you. Right. So there's a lot of work to be done still, but I think we're seeing the beginnings of some of the technologies that could enable this. Asgardia, would they use the blockchain to cryptocurrency? It was, is that part of the plan? Yeah, maybe. Um, I think it's something that our citizens will have a chance to vote on. Oh, wow. Cool. Bringing this back to National Geographic and some of the issues that we've chatted about earlier in this conversation, global warming, deforestation, and what have you, how do you think blockchain can work with helping those situations? Yeah, there are many instances where blockchain could help, and I think we're at the beginning of of this journey. I'll just throw out three examples that, that certainly excite me. One is this idea that you use the blockchain to be that permanent record of data about activities in a particular location. We talked earlier about things like pollution, air quality, etc. But also you could extend that to be things such as ice density and humidity. Um, And you can use blockchain potentially as a way of recording that data so that it becomes longitudinal. So over time you can see how that's changing. But also it's then open to everyone rather than being available to a particular organization. And because of the way blockchain works, it's much harder for people to game the system and change the data. So I think the data piece is really important to us. And some of my colleagues are working on something called Earth Pulse, which is this idea that they want to create a searchable Earth that's a graphical representation, though. So you just pick a place on Earth, you go in, and you see all the data about that place down to what animals are there, what is the level of carbon dioxide in the air, what is the level of oxygen. But you need to be able to tie that back to data that is independent of third-party control. Mm-hmm. So that's one example that I think is, is really interesting. I think another example is, it's more mundane, but it's the idea of rights management in that we have people producing amazing photographs and video work all around the world. And we want to protect their rights. And the world is moving really fast now. You know, you take a picture while you're doing a piece of work in, say, Belize. You maybe don't have access to, to the Internet. So you get onto the Internet, you upload your picture, and then boom, it's out there. How do you stop people from copying that picture? How do you make sure that your rights are being protected? And I do think that there's some digital rights management work being done around blockchain that could really support that. Too. And with, with blockchain, it's not even just uh, how do you stop people? How do you encourage people to keep using it and still get a little monetization from that use? Yes. And that then leads on to the third thing that I think is really important about blockchain. And this is particularly, I think, related to Ethereum. It's this idea of incentivization in that I really believe that we all have the power within us to be citizen scientists and we all have the opportunity to observe the world around us and to record what we see. But you might need a little incentive to nudge you towards it. And if you can incentivize people, maybe with ERC-20 tokens or maybe with some other form of, of cryptocurrency or crypto asset, you could encourage people to be participant in some of this scientific research and scientific activity that could be super helpful. We've seen it with Open Explorer. We ask people to provide information about things that they observe in the ocean. And one of our explorers, David Lang, he is giving people underwater robots if they agree that they use those underwater robots to observe things that they then report back. Having an incentive on top of that that allows people to feel that they're being rewarded in a monetary way, I think is powerful and will really help to unlock even more citizen science in the future. Has National Geographic ever thought of Agile investing some of these projects? 
Yeah, we actually took the decision to get involved in Open Explorer um, as one of those initiatives. But typically, National Geographic Society does it through the individuals. If mm-hmm. someone has a great idea, we like to fund the individual to enable them so that they can do their best work. And I really believe that in the future, some of the explorers that we support are going to be using technology and specifically blockchain as a way of enabling some of the things that they want to do. Before I ask these last two questions, I want to say thank you very much for coming to my hotel room in Denver during ETH Denver and having this hour conversation with me, man. I I very much appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation. So, yeah, thanks for having me as a guest. There's a lot of new people, a lot of average consumers wanting to get into technology, wanting to get more involved. There's always been a barrier to entry when technology is involved. Of course, you know, even when it's a middle-aged person just learning computers or hopping on the internet for the first time, and now we're shifting into IoT, blockchain technology, and so much more. What would your advice, the CTO of National Geographic, one of the oldest franchises in American history, What would you recommend them or what would you tell them to do to start embracing that technology? This might surprise you, but it's my belief that reading is a really important component. You mean paper books? Even paper books. Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I, I travel with an iPad and I have a lot of my stuff is available digitally, but I still sometimes find myself just reading a book. Even in my office the other day, I was reading a book by Max Frisch just over my lunch and Finding ways to stimulate your knowledge and your thinking is, I think, how you always maximize your potential. And I've been very lucky in my life. I've been mentored by some great leaders, whether I people I worked with at Apple or IBM or other companies. And nearly all of them continue to develop their own personal education. So I know that it can be frustrating because people will sometimes contact me on Facebook or LinkedIn and say, Marcus, just give me like, Give me like what this blockchain stuff's all about and what should I do? Tell me the three things I need to do to get into it. And I think I frustrate them sometimes by saying, what you need to do is go and listen to Crypto 101 podcast. Go to a website and download a white paper and read it. And I think you have to be honest to yourself and acknowledge that some of these principles are complex and you've got to take the time to digest them. The other thing I would say, though, is go out and talk to other people and meet mm-hmm. people. And I love coming to things like um, ETH Denver and I love going to different events because hearing people who are spending nearly all of their time working on something is a great way to be enthused by their passion and their enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it rubs off. You know, when mm-hmm. I hang out, I, I joke. I mean, I hang out with really smart people. It makes me smarter. I think that's one of the ways in which people have got to embrace some of these technologies. Right on, man. Thank you very much for that. Last question I always ask every guest on the show. I have a Crypto 101 Spotify playlist. And, you know, I always think that music is a telling of, I don't know if it's telling of a lot of people, but it's a way to connect a lot of people. Mm. And you might hear somebody here and they might have a different point of view. But then when they say that one song, you're like, hey, it's not that bad. <laughs> I like that too. Mm-hmm. What, what three songs would you like to throw on that Spotify playlist, sir? Yeah, only three. You're putting me on the spot here. Yeah, man. I've got to start with Prince. In the you know Prince, my is, man. yeah, defined much of my life when I was growing up. So when doves cry mm. is one of those songs that never gets old for me. I, I just listen to that song all the time. Just a, just an amazing song. So I would definitely say when doves cry by Prince would be one. I'm going to change tempo though a little. In that I've got very eclectic music t- musical tastes. And when I was a young man growing up in London. 
the Prodigy were becoming famous. And I saw them in the summer of 1989 at the Pro- oh, at, wow, um, okay. Camden Palais performing Your Love and Poison. And I have to tell you that Poison is one of the like top songs of my life. Now, it's pretty hard, um, but yeah, it's from the album Music for the Jilted Generation. Just that would be my number two, All right. for sure. And then my number three is really going to surprise you. It would be Adagio for Strings, which sometimes people describe as the saddest piece of music that's ever been written. It's a classical piece that, and I don't actually know all of the origins of it, but I once dated a music professor who got me into classical music. And there's something about Adagio for Strings. It's just the way in which the instruments and the music kind of just draws you in no matter what you're doing. And when I'm trying to focus, sometimes I listen to classical music as a way just to get rid of all the other stuff that's going on in my head and to focus my mind. So Adagio for Strings would be my number three. I'm feeling that, man. Bach Cello Suites is one of my favorites to work to. Excellent. Marcus Delano, the CTO of National Geographic. Thank you for coming on Crypto 101, sir. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Crypto 101. Marcus, if you're listening, thank you very much for coming on the show. And I just want you to know, Marcus, that I am now also a citizen of Asgardia. We could be neighbors. In the next episode of Crypto 101, we have on the CEO of XYO, Mr. Ari Tro, to talk about location, location, location. What can the blockchain do for GPS and location data? And why is it important? How does it fit into our daily lives? And, well, why should we care? That's in our next episode of Crypto 101. But before we go, ApogeeCrypto.com, A-P-O-G-E-E Crypto.com, the best place for your real-time prices. And I want to say thank you very much to Randy McMillan for editing this episode. And we'll see you in future episodes of Crypto 101. Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.